The call went something like this. Here's the pitch. The winning run at second. Ground ball to first. It's a run. It's an error. An error by Buckner. The winning run scores, and the Mets win it. It pains me to say so. The Mets win it 6-5 to five with three runs in the 10th. The call goes on. The ball went right through the legs of Buckner, and the Mets, with two men out and nobody on, have scored three runs to bring the World Series to a seventh game, which we played here tomorrow. Stop clapping, Troy. <laughs> Folks, the call concludes. It was unbelievable. An error right through the legs of Buckner. Who remembers hearing that a few years ago? Jack Buck on the call with CBS Radio. Imagine being known best for being at your worst. The Buckner play, or what I would have called the Buckner blunder, but I was seven years old when it happened, who asked me, is a helpful modern illustration of how a single weak moment, a bad decision, or perhaps even a fielding error can be immortalized shamefully and regrettably so and forever stain our name in the minds of men. To me, this calls to mind the comforting and ever gracious words of Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, which state, If you, O Lord should keep a record of our sinful errors, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Amen? The fact of the matter is that no human being, save one, has ever played a clean game in life. The scoreboard of our lives are chocked full of errors daily for us. Well, listen, as bad as you might feel for former Boston Red Sox first baseman Bill Buckner, imagine getting your name in the paper, that is the Holy Bible, permanently and for a less than flattering reason. The list of the bad boys of the Bible or the Hall of Shame would most certainly include the following. Cain, the cold-blooded killer. He rose up and killed his brother in Genesis 4? Or what of Haman, the hanged man, who tried to hang old Mordecai and and himself found his neck in the gallows? Or Abimelech, the political insurrectionist of Judges chapter 9? Or Herod, the majestic murderer of Matthew chapter 2? Or Judas, the betrayer of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in Luke 22? Or as we heard last week, even Saul, the destroyer of the church turned disciple and preacher of the gospel in Acts 9. The fact is that the pages of Holy Scripture are literally littered with liars, with louts, and with losers. In fact, a closer examination even of the Apostle Paul's last three letters, 1 and 2 Timothy and the letter of Titus, actually contains a few of the absolute worst. The apostle, interestingly, names 34 different people in these last three letters alone. Paul didn't lose his memory even as he aged. And this list includes some real stinkers. Let me give you a few of them. How about Demas the deserter? 
from 2 Timothy chapter 4. Here we read, Do your best to come to me soon, Paul writes to Timothy, for Demas, notice, in love with this present world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Ouch, Paul, did you really need to throw him under the wagon like that? Or what about Alexander the antagonist? Again, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 14, we read here, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, Timothy, for he strongly opposed our message. By the way, this is quite possibly the same Alexander of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20 that we'll look at this morning, though there's no way to be certain about it because information that we have here is scant, and the name Alexander we know from church history or ancient history in Ephesus was quite prolific. It was a common name. Now, the next guy that I'm going to mention actually is not named specifically by Paul, but rather by the Apostle John, but he gets one of my favorite nicknames that I've made up this week. He's Diotrephes the Diva. Diotrephes the Diva from 3 John verse 9, where we read these words. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Well, then there's the pair of men mentioned here in the pastoral letters who turned away from Paul there in Asia, men named uh, Phygelus and Hermogenes, the fugitives. 2 Timothy 1.15, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. What do you got to do to Paul to get your name in the Bible these, this way? It's amazing. Well, last of all, we come this morning to the contemptible crew of erring elders there in the city of Ephesus, Hymenaeus, Philetus, and once again, Alexander. We read of them not only in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, but also of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17, where Paul warns this, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And 2 Timothy 2, 16 and following says, Timothy, avoid irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, and they are upsetting the faith of some. Aren't you glad you came to church today? (laughs) Though we don't get a lot of information about these particular problem pastors, who were eventually expelled there in ancient Ephesus, it's quite possible that these last men mentioned could certainly be numbered among those whom the Apostle Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he goes a little James Bond with us and lists his grave dangers that he faced so often in his ministry. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 26 and following, Paul says, I was on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, 
Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, notice, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and as if this wasn't enough to kill me, Paul says, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul knew danger. Ministry life was no picnic for the Apostle Paul. And I think the point, at least to some degree, is that it was not going to be all potluck suppers and packed pews for young Timothy either. No, in case you're wondering, pastors don't usually work just one day a week. There's more to ministry than prayer meetings and preaching messages. Instead, the very tone and tenor of Paul's pastoral correspondence to Timothy and to Titus is soberingly clear. Men, danger close. Danger close. Gospel ministry done the right way is not for the faint of heart, and it is full of potential heartache. By the way, it is quite interesting to me to observe And maybe you didn't know this, that every book in the New Testament, except for one, mentions the danger of false teachers. Every one of them. The only book in the New Testament that doesn't mention it specifically is the book of Philemon. Every other book warns Christ's disciples of the imminency and the problem of false teachers of the probability of wayward and wicked workers of the word. And Paul, here in First and Second Timothy and Titus, even tells us a thing or two that we are to do about them, and maybe to do with them. Wage the good warfare of faith. The eternal destinies of God's people are at stake. Now, The faithful shepherd, as the Bible well says, and as you well know, perhaps conjuring up some of your in your minds, uh, Psalm 23, the faithful shepherd will have both a rod and a staff. A rod in one hand and a staff in the other. King David, who I think knew a thing or two about the joys and hardships of faithful shepherding, notes in Psalm 23, verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Remember now, the rod was the shorter of the two, a short stick used to fend off and to fight off menacing attacks from lions and other predators. However, the staff was a bit longer and often with a hooked instrument at the end intended to prod and maybe at times gently or perhaps uh, perseveringly rebuke erring or wayward sheep. But the, the point is, a good shepherd knows when to use either of them. Paul then says to Timothy here in our context that a, an approved workman of the word will be daringly different from the day's deviant gospel detractors. He will be different. 2 Timothy 2.15 Don't quarrel over words, Timothy. Rather, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who needs not to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And likewise, in the very next chapter, Paul states, 
All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, Timothy, trust your training, set your feet in scripture, and stand your ground in faith. Now, Paul will comment elsewhere in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I think this is a text relevant to our present passage. He says, command these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but rather set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, notice, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Beloved, our final paragraph in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that we come to today, simply put, is Paul's apostolic call to Timothy to resist false teachers. In other words, Paul advises here that such righteous word-based resistance on behalf of God's saints is both necessary and is urgent for any faithful pastoral ministry. The call to Christian ministry and service includes both courage and compassion. It includes both the rod and the staff. It includes contending against false teachers as well as caring for God's sheep with the truth of God's holy word. I want you to look with me firstly and briefly today at verses 18 through the first half of verse 19 and at Timothy's urgent charge towards righteous resistance, what I'm calling righteous resistance this morning. Paul says here in 1 Timothy 1.18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made previously about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Now it's important to note that the word for charge, the Greek parangelia, and its cognates are used no fewer than three times in 1 Timothy chapter 1 alone. You'll recall back in verse 3, several weeks ago at this point, we read this, these words. 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, As I urged you when I was going on to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may, here's our word, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and to endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Here's the second occurrence. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Well, the third and final occurrence of this word is found in our verse, verse 18. Paul says again, this charge, that is, this urgently important command to resist certain false teachers who are disturbing the peace of God's household, Timothy, I entrust this to you to you, Timothy, and by extension, to all faithful elders and pastors. Notice then that Timothy was under strict apostolic orders. He was under authorized instructions. 
even a sovereign command of God to fight the good fight of faith by going toe-to-toe with certain false teachers. Paul says, essentially, Timothy, your calling demands that you commit yourself fully and sacrificially as a good soldier of Jesus Christ and of his kingdom. And listen, this fight is part of God's strategic plan for the victory and holiness of his faithful church. Now, Paul would later reinforce these very specific pastoral instructions in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Look there with me. 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. Paul says to Timothy again, You then, my child, be strengthened. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of faithful witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. For no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Timothy, remember, you didn't enlist in this glorious fight. You didn't enlist in this glorious fight. Timothy, you were drafted by divine grace. Son, you were recruited and installed in your office and recognized for service by the council of elders and by their prophecy concerning you. So Timothy, stand your ground spiritually, being grounded in God's word faithfully. The same, my dear friends, is true for us. By the way, I think that what is mentioned here of the prophecies made concerning young Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.18, as well as 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, simply are a way of Paul referring to and reminding Timothy of his special call to pastoral ministry. For no, not everybody is cut out for pastoral ministry, but Timothy was. This reminds me of Charles Spurgeon's famous lectures to his students, or lectures to my students, He says in one place, do not enter the ministry if you can help it. If any student in this room could be content to be a newspaper editor or a grocer or a farmer or a doctor or a lawyer or a senator or a king even in the name of heaven and earth, let him go this way. (laughs) I wish somebody would have told me that a long time ago. But he, he continues. He says, but if God calls you to be a minister, don't stoop to be a king. Did you hear what I just said? If God calls you to be a minister, don't stoop to be a king. Not everybody is cut out for pastoral ministry. And let me be brutally honest with you. Some days I wonder if I am. It is beyond me. It is beyond me, friends. I ask you to pray for me. I ask you to pray for your elders and your pastors here at the church. But Timothy's task, especially, and even like every faithful elder's task, and by extension, every faithful Christian's task to some degree was and is to wage the good warfare of faith, holding faith and maintaining a good conscience before the Lord. Christian ministers, as well as the members of Christ's body alike, are to wage a holy war. But listen, it is not a war with guns and bullets. It is not even firstly and primarily a war with ballots and votes, but instead it is a war with righteous weapons, the weapon of the word of God. 
Consider what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 3. He says, but we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, here goes Paul again, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, in beatings and imprisonments, in riots and labors, sleepless nights, hunger by purity, knowledge, patience, and kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech, and the power of God with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and yet behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. What a description of the Christian calling, and particularly of the ministry of pastoral ministry. Look, since we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present spiritual darkness, we are to take up the whole armor of God. Where did we happen to read about that? That's right, Ephesians chapter 6 the same city where Timothy finds himself in this letter. Look, godly resistance against the advance and proliferation of false teachers, Paul further describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Look there with me as well. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 through verse 6. Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God by taking every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. There is a war for us to wage, but it is a supernatural and spiritual war. Brothers and sisters, listen, we must wage the good warfare in the battle for belief and in the war to win men's souls. There is no pacifist option in the spiritual war. Yet, though our weapons include kindness and godly patience and what Paul describes as genuine love and the sword of the Lord, which is the Bible itself, they are no less potent. They are no less deadly, or maybe making alive, if you will, to defend kingdom territory and to liberate and to liberate sinful captives through the preaching of Christ's gospel in faith. Only we must hold our line in our day. Our Bakhmut is the body of Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? Who who will stand in the trenches today? And fight off the invaders who want to destroy God's church. We must. We must stand and fight the good fight for eternal life. Not only for ourselves, but for our children. And for the next generation of this church. We must stand and we must fight the good fight of faith. Now many of you may recall hearing about this. Not that many of you are alive at this point. How Winston Churchill 
The man who nearly single-handedly rallied the people and troops of Great Britain in the fight against Nazi Germany. How he famously said once, this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never in nothing great or small, large or petty. Never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Or as Paul would say to Timothy in our text, I charge you, Timothy, in view of God's mercy and in view of your high and holy calling, that you wage the good warfare of faith, holding faith and a good conscience before the Lord. Never give in. And so today I say to my fellow pastors and my fellow elders, And to all those of you, my brothers and sisters, who are set apart by divine grace and the kindness of God, which leads you and I to repentance of sin and trust in the sovereign and righteous work of Christ and faith in his death and resurrection from the grave, I say to each of us today, let us stay alert. Let us stay alert to our holy calling as Christians. Let us stand ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us, but to do it with gentleness and respect and the weapons of righteousness. Let us, hold, uh, let us fight the good fight of our faith for the Lord and for his people by holding on to the truth of Scripture despite the pressure of our culture or the waves of insult or false accusations that will certainly come our way. Let us fear God, let us love the brotherhood, and let us contend for the truth, particularly right here in the household of Almighty God. May he help us to do so. Well, that's the gist of the first half of today's sermon. Timothy, hold the line. Hold the line. Help is on the way. I'm coming, Timothy. It's your time to shine. It's your time to stand. It's your time to fight. Hold the line. Paul will say in 1 Timothy 6, verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. But if you are listening carefully to the scripture reading, you know there is another part coming. And it's a part that we dare not dodge. We must address. Secondly and finally this morning, I want you to see with me something tragic. There's a tragic occasion. There's a a doctoral blunder on the part of at least two erring elders that gives Paul the opportunity, even the courage to speak this call to Timothy. It's a reason that sobers us up to the reality of apostasy in the church. If you get really quiet for a moment, and you listen really carefully, then perhaps even right now you can hear the sad, shameful sound of yet another contemporary Christian, another modern denomination or church making a shipwreck of their faith in the name of progress. Again, the chilling Bible word for us this morning, and the term that should sober up every self-professing yet willingly sinful believer is the term apostasy. Apostasy. It is a reality. This word basically means to stand away from something. It means to depart or to abandon one's faith. Now, we've all seen those who seemingly start out well, only to flame out and fall away and depart from Christ in the end. 
This departure, this abandonment of belief in Christ is exactly the idea that stands behind the concept of apostasy. Even saying it gives me a chill. Listen, the pastoral letters in particular warn us about the grim reality of apostasy within the visible church of Christ. Listen again at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Now the Spirit, Paul says, expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Do these words sober you up in any sort of way? The French reformer John Calvin notes that a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. A bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. Likewise, in 2 Timothy chapters 3 and 4, Paul's last words before his own martyrdom, Paul further prepares the church for the eventuality of evil sprouting up among the flowers of God's faithful in the field of his church. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. But understand this, Timothy, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, and not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having noticed the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, Paul adds. For their folly will be plain to all, just as, just as was that of those two men. Church, note in, those, in that passage the characteristics of these problem makers and false professors. They sleek in. They devour minds. They woo you away Note them and have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with them. That's what you do with a false teacher. You have nothing to do with them. You avoid them. Be it in person or online. Be it here in the church or on the television set. You have nothing to do with them. Avoid false teachers. They bear a contagion that is deadly. Avoid them. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. Now, if you're paying attention, and I see most of you are today, there is some unsettledness in your spirit. There is a blessed 
tension rising in your heart. Let me explain. Clearly, it is possible for professing Christians, even so-called Christian leaders and pastors, to walk away from and abandon the Lord. With what we see in our eyes, in our time as human beings, it is very clear, if not not all that uncommon, for people to start well and flame out. It happens. It's what apostasy is all about. Paul names two such erring elders in the Ephesian context, Hymenaeus and Alexander along with a third identified individual in 2 Timothy 1, verse 17, named Philetus. And these men were making a mess of things in, the, in God's spiritual household called the church. It's interesting to me that Paul is sort of working with a, a, a nautical theme with his word choice here. That in verse 19, uh, it's easily missed in our English translations, but he writes, by rejecting this, the word rejecting this in the Greek is uh, from the Greek word apatheo, meaning to have cast away, to push aside, even to shove off, to shove off. Some have made shipwreck of their faith. Now it's helpful, and we'll take the time right now to do it, to fast forward to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Go over there with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16, to get a little bit better sense of the real blundering, backsliding, into unbelief on the part of these three men. What was the specific error behind their teaching? And again, Paul is guarded. He doesn't give up all the goods here. In fact, I think these men represent a greater error that we need to identify and avoid, but there are some specifics that we are given in the text. 2 Timothy 2, verse 16. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, notice, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. There it is. Saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, I had to read these words, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Simply stated, these men departed from sound doctrine and were carrying others into deadly error. Paul J. Ochtemeyer states that with Philetus, Hymenaeus held that the general resurrection was already past. That is, Gnostic dualism, assumptions very likely supported an anti-Pauline spiritualizing of the Christian hope and denial of a future bodily resurrection. This was not mere hypocrisy. This was blatant heresy. False teachers may be hypocritical, but they are damned for heresy. For heresy. Hymenaeus and Alexander colluded to misinform and mislead others into the error of their apostasy, claiming to be true believers in God while denying the true teachings of the gospel concerning the crucified, risen, and returning Jesus Christ. These two erring Ephesian elders were a living illustration of what the Apostle John would later state. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, where John says, Children, it is the last hour. 
And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. Notice this verse, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that all that they all are not of us. But you, John writes, have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. Let me state the obvious. There is a clear and apparent and candidly unsettling tension in this teaching between the doctrine of our perseverance, which we unquestionably unquestionably affirm as a church, the doctrine of perseverance, and the reality of tragic apostasy on the other. If you fail to feel the tension, you're not really paying attention. But if you feel the tension, you're right where you need to be. You understand that? I've learned in my years, it's good to feel tension in Bible study. The errors of unresolved tension are where you get really in trouble. Article 17 of our Bible Fellowship Church's Articles of Faith, for example, on perseverance state this. And I love this statement. And I am so grateful for this statement. Salvation is the work of God from its commencement to its consummation. Those regenerated by the word of God through the work of the Holy Spirit become partakers of the divine nature. They are preserved by the power of God so that they never totally or finally fall away, but shall persevere unto the end. And somebody better say amen. The Bible comforts us with the doctrine of our security. And more specifically, with the doctrine that God preserves his own. Note these texts. 2 Timothy 2 verse 19, The Lord knows those who are his. Philippians 1 verse 6, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And finally, 2 Thessalonians 3 verses 2 and 3, Not all have faith, Paul says to the church, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Beloved church, the doctrines of grace, the doctrines of grace and of God's power to preserve us through the gospel embolden our endurance in our walk of faith. They embolden us. If I didn't believe in the doctrine of perseverance, I would fear myself to death. I would fear myself to death. The golden chain, as it's so called in Romans 8, announces beautifully, Romans 8, 28 and following, and we know, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those, notice whom he foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. The golden chain of the gospel of grace is what guarantees our place in heaven. It is not your perseverance. It is God's power to preserve you. 
It is God's power to preserve you. Listen, Jesus himself, the good and faithful shepherd of the sheep, tenderly calls us as his church in John chapter 10, verses 27 and following, saying, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If you want to rest in your security, keep your eyes on God's hand. Keep your eye on Christ's power. If you want to constantly doubt your salvation, keep your focus on your own perseverance, on your own striving, on your own strength. But beloved, ours is a great salvation because in part it is a secure salvation. It is a secure salvation. Our faith rests securely in the hands of a faithful father who never fumbles and never commits an error. But the counterpart of scripture, the place where we in our church perhaps are often far too silent, is the sobering warning and reminder That there are those who start with a good profession in faith in God. But then they prove by their walking away, that is by their apostasy, that they never truly possess the life of Christ in them. They look to be the genuine article, but they never authentically love the Lord their God in any legitimate sense. And let me tell you, it is virtually impossible for us to know the difference. They were self-deceived, and they deceived others. They fell away because in the end, they had never belonged to Christ in true belief in the first place. Consider the parable of the soils of Matthew 13. Only one of four soils is the good soil. Perhaps by implication, we could see that there are fewer who profess faith that actually possess it in the gospel. Again, I'm not wanting anyone to walk out of here in a crisis of your faith, but I am wanting to clearly warn you that there are those who start out but do not end well in the faith. Hymenaeus and Alexander were two such pitiable souls. The truly terrifying thing is that they made it all the way into church leadership. We don't know for certain, but they probably were elders in Ephesus before their duplicity and false doctrine was discovered. So what did Paul do? And what should you do if these lips or any elder in this church start spewing false doctrine? Walk us right out the door. Walk us right out the door. There's not a one of us that's above accountability to God's word. Paul says in verse 20, These men I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. The thing that I fear most and the reason why I work as hard as I do is because I know James 3.1 is in the Bible. Not many of you, my brothers, should be teachers for you know that you'll be judged with a greater strictness. There's only one other instance of this phrase in the New Testament, and it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
And if you know your Bibles, you know the context of that text is a shocking revelation of sexual immorality within the church at Corinth. It's the only other place where this phrase, deliver them over to Satan, is used. 1 Timothy 1, 8, 1, 20, and, and 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Listen to what this says. Paul says to the church in Corinth, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with you, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What are you to do with apostatizing elders? Well, you are to avoid them, and then you are to confront them, and then you are to excommunicate them. And in that order. The process of church discipline, Matthew 18, 15 to 18 specifically, was given to the church to purge the evil of unrepentance and false teaching from the purity of the body of Christ, as well as a merciful mechanism that is meant to rescue and ultimately to restore and redeem straying sheep back to the fold. Church discipline has a bad rap, but it's a a beautiful act. It's a beautiful act and gracious act aimed at the protection, the purity, and the ultimate restoration of God's erring sheep. Because if we don't identify and remove sin according to God's word, it, like gangrene, or perhaps we might say like cancer, will metastasize, it will spread, it will bring disorder, and ultimately it will bring death to the household of God. John Owen, the Puritan, put it this way, be killing sin or sin, will be killing you. So beloved, today's call is ultimately a call to endurance. It's a call for Timothy, a young pastor, but by extension I think every faithful Christian to endure in the good warfare of gospel ministry with compassion and courage, with humility and hope, with a readiness to restore and a readiness to confront, not purely a pension to punish or destroy. Church discipline is not about getting revenge. It's about getting God's true sheep back. The call today is a call to recognize the spiritual cancer of false doctrine, to test everything by the Spirit, to hold fast to what is good, and to abstain from every form of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22. For the fact that I close with is this. True godliness. True godliness. Not a pretense not a posture, not a poser. True godliness demands that we feel and live in the tension between our security on the one hand and the threat of of apostasy on the other. That we remember that the gospel comforts us with the knowledge that God is faithful, as well as spurring us on to make our calling and election certain by seeking to be faithful ourselves by the powerful working of God's Spirit. Oh Lord, would you help us? to walk in the light of your word. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the truthfulness of your word. Thank you for its clarity. Thank you for the conviction that you work through the word as the Holy Spirit brings light and understanding and conviction to the hearer. Oh Lord, I pray that you would steal the spine of your people 
to in Christ-like compassion and courage identify and resist false doctrine and immoral living in God's house. That we would carefully and winsomely but boldly confront evil first in ourselves but also in our family. That it would be driven away from your church that you might gain the glory. But also, Lord, and equally so, I pray for every single listener this morning. I pray this for myself this week. That if there is any duplicity in our heart, any false professor professing Christians or uh, identifying Christians in this church, that your Holy Spirit would grant true and everlasting repentance and they would come home to Christ. Oh Lord, preserve us and give us the grace to persevere, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.